Hi, my name is Rahel Schmitz. I'm the author of The Supernatural Media Virus, Virus Anxiety in Gothic Fiction Since 1990. And you're listening to the HP Lovecast podcast. And welcome to episode 15 of the HP Lovecast Presents Fragments. I'm Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on the horror and spy genres. And I'm Nicholas Tayaka, pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, Industrial Music, Horror Studies, and I'm the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature, From Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. On today's episode, we will be discussing the Lovecraftian horror film, The Void. Yes! This is a 2016 Canadian film written and directed by Stephen Kostkowski and Jeremy Gillespie and starring Canadian actor Aaron Poole. The Void was funded through traditional channels. However, the creature effects were crowdfunded on Indiegogo, raising $82,000. Critical responses have mostly been favorable. Rotten Tomatoes reported a 78% approval rating and an average 6.11 out of 10, and states, quote, The Void offers a nostalgic rush for fans of low-budget 1980s horror and legitimate thrills for hardcore genre enthusiasts for all ages, end quote. Before jumping into our discussion, let's cover the plot synopsis. All right, the plot for The Void, an apparently all-ages horror film. Deputy Sheriff Carter is chilling in his patrol car late one chilly night when a man stumbles upon the road in front of him. The man, James, has just fled from a massacre at a remote farmhouse. Carter takes the man to a nearby hospital that's currently being deactivated because it suffered major fire damage. Working at the hospital is Nurse Allison, Carter's estranged wife, after their baby had died in her womb from being strangled by its umbilical cord. While walking around, Carter encounters Nurse Bev, who has just murdered another patient and flayed the skin off her face. She attacks Carter, and he shoots her, but passes out and has visions of a strange world. When he comes to, State Trooper Mitchell has arrived, coming for James. Carter attempts to call the situation in from his police car, but he's injured by a robed cultist. The cultists surround the hospital, and Beverly has now turned into a giant tentacled monster and absconds off with Mitchell. Vince and Simon, who massacred the cultists at the aforementioned farmhouse, arrive seeking James. It gets chaotic. James stabs Dr. Powell, Simon and Vince hack the Bev monster, and everyone is now locked in the hospital. Carter, Simon, and Vince go out to Carter's car to get some ammunition and a shotgun to fend for themselves, and while gone, Allison goes deeper into the hospital to get supplies to treat a very pregnant Maggie. She instead gets taken by Dr. Powell. Carter and Vincent come to Dr. Powell's office, where Powell calls Carter from his phone while Vincent goes through the doctor's lockbox, finding a spellbook and Polaroids showing that he is the leader of the cult. 
Carter, Vince, Simon, and James head to the lower depths of the hospital to confront the doctor and rescue Allison. All goes to hell, as under the hospital is an otherworldly maze populated with the doctor's experiments. James gets his face smashed in. Carter finds his wife giving birth to a monster, and he hacks her to pieces with an axe. Carter confronts the doctor in front of a triangular gate to another cosmic world. He is stabbed in the back by Maggie, who in turn gives birth to a giant monster. Simon and Vincent combat this monster, while Carter pushes himself and the doctor into the void. The film ends with Carter and his wife standing in the infinite chaos. I so, felt like we needed a dramatic, <laughs> you know, musical cue after that uh, plot synopsis. Bum, bum, bum. Let's, let's, uh, let's go back in time, email Cryo Chamber, and say, hook us up with the most grooviest, dark, ambient, crawling, chaotic music you can do. Um, so, Michelle. Nick. <laughs> Your thoughts on The Void. Uh, did you love it or did you love it? <laughs> okay. Um, well, let me give some context. This was, I believe, my second viewing um, of the film after we saw it in the indie cinema back in um, Santa Ana uh, yeah. back in 2016. Um, so I had actually forgotten enough of, I felt like the, the like smaller details and kind of the nuances of the film and the tension that it created. So I went into viewing this with kind of like uh, fresh eyes, but also with some of the understanding about the behind the scenes production, because uh, we have the we have the film on DVD or Blu-ray. And so we've watched the behind the scenes some time ago. So I, I think as a as a result of seeing the behind the scenes, knowing a little bit more about production uh, of the film, um, I really had a, a greater appreciation for the practical effects and the ability to create such uh, intense um, tension in a Lovecraftian film on such a slim budget. So um, yeah, I actually, I think I liked it better the second time than I did the first, and um, did I love it? I I guess I did. I definitely thought it was a, a very good film, um, and definitely I think it was underrated when it came out, and I would definitely recommend this film myself. But um, what about you, Nick? What did you? What were your initial thoughts? Oh man, this this movie is fantastic. Um, like you, I think I appreciated it even more the second time around. Um, yeah, the first time we saw it was at. I cannot remember the name of the theater, but it was in Santa Ana. It's where our friend the Sean... The Frida? Is it the Frida? Is it the Frida? I think it's the Frida. We'll call it the Frida. I think it's the Frida. It's in Santa Ana. Um, I, I remember it was like one of like the first films we'd like watched in the theater in a long time. We were super hyped for it. I saw all these posters for it, and I just had a, a good vibe about the film. And we went and watched it. I remember liking it a lot. I remember at the time I was maybe 80% sold on it because there's a sequence toward the end when they're under the hospital and they're battling monsters. And it, to me, it seemed like kind of a tonal shift where it was kind of a slow burn atmospheric, you know, very Lovecraftian horror. And then it kind of turned to an action film. And I remember at the time thinking it just tonally didn't work. Second time viewing it, I was on board with it. I'm like, okay, I'm down with it. I see what this film's really trying to do. Definitely needs to showcase its creature effects. And this isn't too much different than, say, Silent Hill or something. So, 100% on board. I 
It a- aged aged wonderfully uh, in terms yeah. of uh, content, a- in terms mm-hmm. of the way it looks. It's just a, a great film, great film. I'm, I'm excited that we're talking about it about her during our 80s quote-unquote months on the podcast. Yes, uh, that's spreading over November and December. But definitely, I think this is... Um, I hadn't thought about, you know, whether it aged well or not, and it definitely did. I would not have guessed that this is from 2016 um, because it, it still looks great. Um, so well, I'm maybe, sure we'll get into nuances well, here in Well, a let's bit. talk about that right now because this is this is kind of a weird timeless film and i say timeless not like casablanca's timeless or something like that it's just it's it's a really ambiguous film it's definitely you know it came out in the mid 2010s and this is when 80s nostalgia kind of hit top of the roller coaster peak i mean the guest i think had just come out and when was stranger things when did that come out i think it was about one year later or so right but but that mid 2010s definitely stranger things was about to come out um you know that outrun and retrowave music genre had taken off and your perturbator was kicking some butt carpenter brute was kicking some butt and and here's the void, which from the post art, even the font, you know, it says the void in kind of this blue old type. It looks very poltergeisty. Yeah, and it's got tentacles coming out yeah. from the triangle. So it, yeah. Oh man, that poster is so cool. It looks like an '80s poster, but when you watch the film, it's not quite an '80s film. I mean, there, it, there's no synthwave soundtrack. It doesn't, you know, have like kind of the silliness that you would find in an 80s horror film but on the other hand like the setting is so ambiguous the the hospital has old crt monitors there's no Mm -hmm. cell phones his patrol car is very old so it's like this could be like an early 90s film or it could be a present day film and it's just really set in a very backwaters kind of kentuckian type town it could go either way so it's like it's 80s definitely homage 80s with its creatures but it's not quite like an 80s setting film if that makes sense it does um i tend to think that it it definitely works as an 80s film it does like you say have that timeless i was like thinking of the costumes that everyone was wearing it's in a hospital so you know they're wearing their kind of gowns but Nothing really gives away the time period of this. I even was like looking at Daniel's um, cop uniform, and it's got SD up on the collar, and I think that's actually supposed to be like South Dakota. Um, he's in Mason County, um, but uh, you're right. There SD w- Sheriff's Department. I think that's what that means. The SD on the collar. I think it means Sheriff's Department. Oh, was it Sheriff's Department? Yeah. Oh, okay, all right. Um, but still, like you, you say, South Dakota could be back. The town looks backwards. The opening shots of the film show like decrepit buildings and kind of like a factory off in the distance. This is definitely not a sprawling metropolis or a big city or even the suburbs, which in the 80s, you know, you set a lot of films in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or they'd be out in the kind of, you know, a rural town area. So that is definitely set in that area. Um, I think one of the things that I picked on up on was the color of quite a bit of the hospital scenes was very kind of yellowishy green, kind of a faded 
um, that kind of served two purposes. One was to give that retro feel, that kind of like, am I watching an older film or watching a new film looking older? Um, but then you also, because of the color schemes, I think you, you created kind of this off-kilter, off-putting color that creates um, a certain level of kind of sickly that goes with the hospital, um, but also kind of that off-putting, it kind of puts you out as your step. And you, you have a, I know I kind of had a, a, re, a, a repulsion uh, towards the colors just at the fact that it, it did look kind of sickly and, and off-putting. I, I, I agree, but different viewpoints slightly. Not sickly, but I went with lifeless. Um, there is like no life in this film, especially since you're dealing with a lot of doctors, hospitals, and rebirth. Rebirth is a big part of this film, but every shot of this film feels so lifeless, and I don't mean that negatively. Um, the opening and closing shots of the film where it shows kind of the woods and everything, you know, there's no leaves on the trees. Everything is barren and kind of, like like you're saying, monochromatic. Inside the hospital, it's just drowned out in that kind of, you know, hospital lighting that's very sterile, but also very... You know, being in a hospital by yourself is kind of eerie. It's eerie and it's lifeless. And since watching this film back in 2016, you and I, we've watched a lot of uh, YouTube shows like on dead malls and urban exploration mm -hmm. where, where folks go into an abandoned building and kind of scope around and... And sometimes they put that to, like, vaporwave and synthwave music. Yep. Th this movie has that kind of urban exploration feel to it of here's this decaying um, structure in a decaying area overgrown with plants that are also dead. You know, th this is, it's lifeless. And I think that adds to the bleak subject matter of the film this is not a joyful film this is not a happy film if your happy note is you and your wife get together in the infinite chaos <laughs> that's not exactly that happy and and i th i think uh it's sickly our lifeness quality of the setting the way it's shot mm -hmm. really adds to that yeah um just as a interesting tidbit when i was uh Taking a look uh, at the notes for this film again, um, I did find out that the location was actually a school, um, and it was d demolished the same year that this film uh, was released. So that building actually no longer exists. It's uh, it's gone. So well, that's a, that's a good way to. <laughs> To, to film something is, hey, we know this thing's going to get destroyed, so that means we can have at it to do what we need to do with it. Um, I would say, since the, the 80s is strong in this movie, I think it's probably worthwhile to talk about some of the other films out there that we kind of see in the void. Sure, go for it. Um, I think the first one, and they actually homage it in the film itself, is when one of the patients is uh, sitting in the hospital bed, and he's watching TV, and what's on the TV is Night of the Living Dead. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, this isn't a zombie movie per se, but like Night of the Living Dead and other John Carpenter films like Assault on Precinct 13, 
um, even Evil Dead. This is a siege film, like a very late 70s, 80s siege film where all the characters are in one location. Now, usually in those films, something's trying to break in. Usually it's zombies. All the zombies are trying to get in. Um, instead, they even make a... a uh, an observation in here like no no one's trying to get in they're just trying to keep us in so it's kind of like a little kind of uh what am i looking for a subversion 180 of the the siege film trope where no one's trying to break in we're trying to get out and they won't let us out the film is very very indebted to john carpenter's the thing um especially in regard to the practical creature effects i mean the Carpenter ones look good even to today. And I, I think when we saw, we saw some sort of review on the prequel where they ditched the practical effects and went for CG effects. And we saw that and we like cringed so bad at how awful it looked. And yet here's this lower budget film doing giant tentacled monsters and it's just chef's kiss. It looks great. Yeah, I've. That was one of the things that I kept going back to was the fact that this is not a big budget film, and yet they were able to pull off big budget effects um, that I thought were better than some of the bigger, you know, higher end uh, budget films that are out there. They actually deliver on what they what they're trying to do in this film, and. Uh, I think very commendable. And, and they do it front and center. It's not like, mm -hmm. and kind of getting in Lovecraft territory, you know, Lovecraft territory slash really low budget films, they tend to hide the monster. You know, Lovecraft will, you know, there'll be two characters in an airplane, like in Mountains of Madness, and one looks behind, ah, oh, I saw something so horrible, I can't describe it. And that, ooh, this is so spooky. Um, are, are in a very low budget film, you'll see a monster shabbling in the darkness, but it's dark and it's foggy and yeah, it's scary and it's atmospheric but on the other hand if you're a connoisseur of those practical effects i mean if you're kind of like a rick baker fan or a, a winston fan or whatever you actually want to see that stuff front and center um it, it would make no sense to watch you know the movie aliens and hide the queen alien in the back you want to see that mother and in this film they show it when the bev monster comes out in fact you and I were talking after we watched the film the other day. It's like between watching in the theater and watching it uh, HD on our TV, it felt even more clearer. Like it was still dark and ambient, but we really could see the tentacles, the slime, the exploding pus things uh, on the bodies, uh, everything going there. And they just they didn't shy away. They put their budget where their mouth was, and they they were able to back it up. The ending shot of this film is i know other people have made this observation but we'll make anyway is i think beat for beat mimics lucille fulci's the beyond um where uh david warbeck and katarina mccall are standing there in this abyss just you know looking off their eyes are glazed over mm -hmm. um and it's a very, you know, pretty iconic shot of Fulci's work. I mean, they even put it on the cover of uh, Stephen Thrower's book, uh, Beyond Terror. And that that movie ends the exact same way as um, The Void. Um, I would say, well, of course, The Void looks better because of all the clouds, the pyramid, just kind of floating there. It's very otherworldly. Definitely, I, I felt like I've read that scene in a Lovecraftian short story before. Like, I can imagine, like... The god 
Nyla Thaprotep. <laughs> I can't say his name. Probably chilling inside that floating pyramid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think one other thing to throw out there is not necessarily a movie, but a video game. Um, when they go under the hospital, where it kind of turns to a different world, and it's a maze, and there's it's kind of gritty industrially and very red-looking, it makes me think of Silent Hill. Yeah. Um, the, the games, you know, Silent Hill takes place in so many dilapidated hospitals and classrooms. And, you know, there's there's the real world version that's dilapidated. Then there's the Silent Hill version, which is even worse. You know, I, I kind of expected, you know, a, a pyramid head monster just to pop around the corner and go blah. And uh, I, I dug that, you know, Silent Hill's not a Lovecraftian um, horror game by any stretch, but this film has that kind of merging of of Lovecraft and Silent Hill, and I dug it. I mm -hmm. dug it. I also uh, kind of cued into Event Horizon. Yes. And um, the peeling of the skin, like, you know, trying to to basically shed your skin into um, uh, this new enlightened creature um, was very prevalent in this story like it was in an Event Horizon. Um, not just Event Horizon, but remember when we watched The Keep? We had the, the monster Molossar. And, uh, and I think this movie has a little bit of The Keep in it as well. But if you remember Molossar, you know, he's reforming his body. And, you know, he's walking around with, like, his veins and his muscles showing. And when we watched The Keep a couple months ago, we kind of scoffed at, like, that doesn't look as good as it thinks it should look. And here we are, you know, 40 years later with a lower budget film that's doing basically the same thing. While Molossar's taking on his skin, the Doctor's taking off his skin. But, you know, they're both in that state of skinless and showing off your entrails and stuff. And the Doctor in this, yeah, he looks, he looks again, monster and the makeup and the prosthesis shown up front. And good, he's intimidating. He does. He looks like Doctor Weir from Event Horizon, and it's dis disconcerting. Yeah, um, I was also thinking just now uh, a little bit of Hellraiser. Yeah, I think uh, when the Doctor has shed his skin and he's in kind of this like longer robe, but it's from his waist down, um, and then you can see his chest and all this the mm -hmm. skin off of it kind of reminded me of some scene I thought in a Hellraiser. Um, I'm not sure which one, but it just is reminiscent to no, me. No, you're correct. It's the first Hellraiser when... They, is it Frank? That yeah, when he, the... when he finally gets unlocked from the box, he's mm -hmm. all he is is just... He's skinless. Mm -hmm. And he's... The other lady has to go and bring lovers back and kills him, and his blood reforms him. Yeah. But you're, you're, yeah, Frank, before he gets his skin and stuff back, is totally, again, Hellraiser, 80s film, the doctor looks mm -hmm. like Frank. You're, you're dead, dead on. Mm -hmm. And again, all, something about skinless people that, you know, if, in my mind, if you have no skin, all your nerves are exposed, you would be in like agony. How horrible that would be. But you have these films where, these monstrous people are walking around skinless and they're just a-okay or our opposite they're not a-okay but it's that pain is pleasure hellraiser type thing regardless it's ooh, how are you doing that yeah that's interesting because it seems like you you get to an enlightened state through a sense of 
challenge, personal challenge, physical um, test. So to me, this kind of fits with you have to be in a certain level of pain or to push through the pain in order to be enlightened. And it seems like a lot of these films have that kind of undertone to them. No, no, I, I agree. I'm just drawing a blank where, you know, I'm, and it might have been, it might be a Hellraiser film, but, you know, there's that mantra of, like, you know, exquisite pain, you know, mm -hmm. what sort of... Oh, you I know, think that is Hellraiser, I, isn't know, it? I think it is, but I think there's also... Uh, I have not seen it, but I read about it, and I think it was in the book Scared Sacred. Mm -hmm. um, there is a movie that came out in the 2000s. I think it's called... Oh, help me, help me, help me. What is it? Martyr. I think it's called Martyr. And I think the plot of that film is like these priests or other folks, they they, they kidnap women mm -hmm. and they just tortured the heck out of them. I mean, they go hog wild. I, I think it's considered a French extremity film, which I don't touch. Those get a little too gory for me. Mm -hmm. But I believe the plot of that film is you torture these people so much that, you know, their pain opens up like visions of God. You become a martyr or something. Um, folks, I haven't seen the film, so do, don't leave comments saying I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm not going to read them. But I believe that's what that film was about, was just torturing people to get some sort of sense of enlightenment. And I believe it was called Martyrs. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, you know, knowledge, the, the pleasure principle, I, I know there's something there, i just not gifted with it. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, there, there's, there's a big theme with Carter's character I want to talk about. And it's probably one of the really crazy standout things. And and that is the sense of control. Um, okay. And Carter's character is all about control and how he never gets it. So, for, so for he's a police officer, so he should be in control. And as we find in most horror films, police officers are rarely in control. They usually arrive at the last minute and get a hatchet to the back. Um, but like, like example, at the big beginning of the film, he gets uh, the guy off the street. What hospital is he going to go to? You have to go to this rundown hospital. He doesn't want to go to that one. The one he wants to go to is like miles away. So he's forced to go to this one against his wishes. Um, when he gets there, he has to shoot Bev and he has a seizure while he loses control there. The state trooper shows up and basically takes control of the scene. That mm -hmm. was that was Carter's scene. It's not his scene anymore. He has to even hand over his gun. He's lost control. Just like the Joy Division song, she's lost control. In fact, he's, he's begging for something to get control of. He says, can I call this in? I've got to call this in. It's kind of whimpering, like, throw me a bone here so I mm -hmm. have some sort of composure. And... Um, uh, and then when Vince and Simon arrive on the scene with their shotguns and everything, he's definitely not in control then. Uh, he keeps, you know, trying to like, hey, uh, barter with them, negotiate with them. He's not, he doesn't work with that. He tells his, you know, strange wife, don't go running off by yourself. What does she do? She goes running off by herself. And if she hadn't done that, the other half of the movie wouldn't happen. You know, she wouldn't have gotten kidnapped. Um... And she pays the price for it. Uh, the only time he gets any sort of semblance of control is when he gets the shotgun and he kind of leads the expedition down there. But that's about it. it. It takes him forever to get to that point. He's compared to like his dad, who used to be apparently a stand-up cop, and now he's just in his shadows. Mm -hmm. And now contrast that. He, this is a guy who should be in control of the situation. He's not. 
contrast that to his rival character, which is Dr. Powell, who's in total control. He's in control of life and death. That's what's led him to this moment of all his research and sexual cult meth head activities. He, he's, he's in control of an entire cult that does his bidding. He controls life and death. He brings his daughter back, albeit as a monster. So it's an interesting kind of control power play there that I don't think Carter ever gets. You know, he never actually obtains that. If that's like his character arc, you could probably say, there's one other scene in the film, and this probably might be read differently, is when when uh, Carter confronts his wife, and Dr. Powell speaking to him, he's like, you know, when your child died, I saw relief in your face. And, you know, that can be taken a lot of ways. It's kind of sad, but, you know, I started thinking, well, what if this wasn't a planned pe pregnancy? You know, he doesn't have control over where his life's going now. Now that with his child dead, it kind of gets him back on track. Maybe he just wasn't ready to have a kid yet, but his wife was. That probably led to some of the estrangement. That's just all hypothesis, but I could see it kind of playing into this character who is a cop, should be in a position of authority, and he's just not there. No, that's a great reading. I hadn't really thought about um, your character, the character being in control. Um, I think the only thing that I would add to it is the, the fact that, you know, it continues to substantiate people in authority, particularly in a, in a, um, you know, justice authority, um, how they don't seem to have much control. The, the people that should have it have control over, you know, what your fate is, is again, more towards a doctor who is science. So I kind of, you know, think back to the arguments of, you know, the importance of science mm. um, and, you know, the attainment of knowledge through science rather than through, you know, more traditional means. That's really the only thing that um, I was really th thinking about. I hadn't thought about the, the control issue. Um, I thought, honestly, I thought more of the the whole kind of dad line kind of superfluous insofar as we really don't get a whole lot of information and I for me I felt like it it's sort of muddied until you get to the very end and then the doctor says well like your father before you and your your son you know you kind of finish out that triangle you mm -hmm. know the father the son the holy spirit so you know it's that part's kind of an interesting circle and why they they might have the father as kind of something in there. And that's kind of more what I took it as. Oh, no, this film is definitely, and I guess, lack of a better word, patriarchal. It mm -hmm. absolutely is. And maybe control and patriarchy go hand in hand in this because all the characters in this film are... Uh, fathers who have lost something. The doctor has lost his daughter and he's turned to crazy occult means to try to get her back. Carter has lost his son because it got strangled by his umbilical cord and his wife. Uh, Vincent has lost his kid and Vincent's kind of the weirdest character because we know the least about him. We know he carries like a baby shoe on him. So his kid was born, was a baby, but died. And I think 
I think what we're supposed to take away is the cultist killed the baby, and that's why he's hunting down the cultist. Because why else would he be doing all this? It's the only thing I could think of is they came in, probably took the baby for one of their ritual sacrifices or something. That's that has to you know the linkage is there. We we're just not overtly told what it is, and that's why Vincent is on his arc probably mostly for revenge because he's not he's not really heroic, and it's not like. Like, at the end, when he gets to the hospital, you know, he actually doesn't really want to go in the basement. He's not the type of hero like, yes, let's stop this evil. You mm -hmm. know, that's not his character. And, you know, he operates that way. He's hunting down the cultists and killing them. He knows what they're capable of. But he's not the savior of the world type, which is interesting because usually if you're one, you're the other as well. But anyway, he's a flawed father as well. Not flawed, but he's lost his son, and that's what... All these characters are brought here on this hospital on this dark, stormy night. You know, it's not stormy. They're all dads who have lost a kid. Yeah, and even though uh, Vincent has the surrogate son in Simon, mm -hmm. um, when Vincent's mind is played with and he's envisioning the house with his wife, the, the baby that dies, and the wife dies, <laughs> and Simon is supposedly there... And Vincent turns on Simon and says, it's all your fault. It's all your fault. And so, you know, uh, Vincent, I'm almost wondering, is he, you know, transferring that he should have, he himself should have been there and wasn't. And Oh, it's um, total projection. So. Total projection. It. I mean, we don't know the real relationship between Simon and Vince other than Vincent, other than they're definitely brought together because of the actions of the cultists. So Simon could really be his son. Simon could be a best friend, whatever. But I think you're right. It's definitely, it's not Simon's fault at all. I mean, even if it was, eh, I think it's projection. I think you're right. It's guilt. There's mm -hmm. a lot of guilt in this film. This film carries guilt. Um, I think you're right. I think Vincent... You know, he was probably off doing something. His He and, arrived and, too late to save his wife. Yeah. Or maybe he was with... I don't know, but you're right. There's definitely a projection there. And and definitely, it's all the men that have the guilt. They're all the ones carrying the guilt. They they are. And, and it's, what do you do with that guilt? Well, that's actually a good question. I'm glad I asked it of myself because I think it'll bring some good dialogue here. What do you do with that guilt when you... I'm going to say... Res Directly, indirectly, or not at all responsible. Um, so Vince's son dies. He's, we're going to say he's kind of responsible. Not, not maliciously, you know. He was off doing something so he couldn't protect him. So there's his guilt there. So what does he do to atone for it? He's off to hunt these cultists. Okay, Dr. Powell lost his daughter. He's guilty of that. Uh, I, he didn't he, kill yeah, he or anything, but he feels guilt for it. He says it devastated him. Well, and as a doctor, yeah. you should your your mantra is to you yeah. know to save lives. And so here's here he is. Here's his daughter, mm -hmm. and he wasn't able to save her. Mm -hmm. You know, and he should be able to save her. Mm -hmm. And but he, even though he's the bad guy, he does <laughs> believe it or not, he does something about it. It, that something is turning to the dark Lovecraftian otherworldly arts to learn necromancy, but gosh darn it, it is something, and he's a go-getter. Um, <laughs> yes, he's a go-getter. But Carter is in the middle. He's lost his son. 
he had, he has he had no responsibility for it. And even Doctor Powell, when talking to Allison, brings up this kind of how insignificant this all was. Like your baby died because it got strangled with its own, you know, um, umbilical cord. You know, it's not like someone killed the baby. It's not like there's a maleficent force. That's just cruel nature. You know, it's as it's inconsequential. You don't even bat a dot, an eye at it. You know, and so I mean, I'm talking about baby's dying here we, we talked about that in a prior podcast as well oh you know what in our, our last episode when we were talking about um witches the the uh, dreams of the witch house we had that story about uh, i'm gonna lose my kid unless i do a deal with the devil and I get the the little entities inside of it and it brings oh it yeah yeah we yeah, talked about right. that mm-hmm. and oh in the witch the vivitch mm-hmm. where the baby died in that too and i was kind of like yeah you know Killing babies on screen is cool, but that in context, it's not cool. Please don't leave a comment on that one either, folks. But anyway, Carter's caught in the middle because he lost his kid, and it was just that's just the cruelty of the universe. What's he going to do about it? And right now, it sounds like he's not divorcing, but it could lead down the path of divorce from his estranged wife. That's his path to deal with it. Yet, the other two extremes of (laughs) violent revenge and necromantic arts, and I guess Carter represents the everyman in this case of I just don't know what to do. I can't comprehend this. What do you do? Because society kind of dictates that male masculinity you know, that you're supposed to be like a strong a strong silent type you're supposed to internalize the hurts you're not supposed to cry all these rules um so where do you find you where does a man find his way to deal with such tragedy um and sorrow and Um, carter can't find that in this you know guilt um, you know, at inaction or not being there, like in the case of Vincent, how do you, as a, as a man or as, as any person, how do you deal with it? But particularly men who are taught to not show emotion, how do you deal with those type of things? Well, in Carter's case, he's trying to not confront it. I mean, beginning of the film, what hospital I got to go to? You got to go to the hospital, your ex, or your... The strange wife, excuse me, is at. I don't want to go there. I don't want to see her. I can't. I can't see her because it will bring up those emotions and all that stuff. Okay, I have to go there. How she's right in front of me. How do I deal with her? Well, I put up the barriers. You know. Uh, hey, you got a stain on your shirt. I could do my own laundry. Yeah. He says that. Not as sarcastically as I did. That was all for comedic effect. But he puts up the barriers, and the thing is, is those barriers work because halfway through the film he says i don't want he he does care about his ex uh i keep calling her ex they're not exes they're just estranged you know they're trying to work things out i'm guessing but i'm guessing had he confronted it a bit better been a bit more open about his emotions i don't know when he tells his estranged wife don't go by yourself promise me you won't go by yourself there are evil critters down there you just saw an evil critter can't you comprehend that she probably wouldn't have she probably would have trusted him a bit more or said okay but instead she probably sees his lack of control lack of everything and scampers off by herself and we now know how that ends mm-hmm. barriers folks talk talk to your so's 
Yes, this is what the void teaches us. <laughs> there, there's a life lesson in the void, <laughs> and somewhere in between the gore and necromancy. And you know what? I think I think that leads to a pretty pretty big question here, and that's the Nick Mamatos question: Is this movie awe inspiring? Why don't you answer first? <laughs> I think it is. I mean, I think it is in the last couple seconds of the film. Uh, everything leading up to it is, you know, kind of a, you know, you're in the hospital fighting monsters and all that other stuff. But I, I truly think if I was in the character's shoes and I go through the void portal and now I'm in some cosmic other realm where there's clouds and pyramids and crazy non-Euclidean geometry and I'm trying to comprehend all of it. I mean, they they don't go insane. They don't go uh, crazy. They're, they're To me, they're struck as you know, awestruck. Like, there is a sense of, whoa, that this is not right, this is not real, this is... But, you know, they're not panicking, they're not um, going crazy or quibbling. In fact, they, they hold hands because I, I think, you know, now they're in this, you know, together, they're finally together, they're probably not going to work together, but, uh, you know, now, now they have each other, and that's what they do know is each other. They don't know this other cosmic infinity in front of them and you know now they got to confront it and it's a lot to take in and i think i think that's them taking in the untaken inable if that makes sense yeah i think that there the the concept of awe plays differently depending on the character i think that the doctor definitely has a sense of awe through all of it um that he is seeking out the knowledge. He is trying to seek out the knowledge that cannot be learned. Um, versus um, Daniel, who is um, plagued with these seizures, these visions. He's not necessarily saying, oh, i got to know all about that. Um, but the doctor is definitely seeking out. And he is very much in awe. Um, I felt that um, Daniel was definitely more down to earth and not necessarily like, oh boy, monsters, I'm, I'm in awe. <laughs> I'd, I don't sense that from him at all, I think. Um, well, but I think from the doctor, he, he signed on the dotted line, he drank the Kool-Aid, he was all in. Yeah, and, well, yeah, I, I think that's kind of a good thing, though. The, you know, this isn't like a zombie movie where the characters recognize, oh, they're zombies, but we're not going to call it zombies. What are these things? I, I think, you know, uh, they're doing what they can in the film to survive, which is they know that these things are going to kill them. Uh, you can either freeze up like Mitchell and get assimilated by him, or you can act with an axe and go chop, 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 chop. Um, and... You know, they're. I think they're scared, but at least they're they're not like a Lovecraftian character. They're not quibbering. I mean, yeah, uh, Carter like faints at the very beginning from a seizure, but that doesn't happen again. And you know, that's to to me, it's a little bit more. He shot someone. He shot a friend, and then got plagued by a vision. I can kind of get that. It's not like a Lovecraftian character of oh my god, I'm in the dark and something slimy brushed by me. Oh, let me pass yeah. out there. I, I if anything, I think. Daniel it does the flip of what our Lovecraftian characters usually do, which is they become more more and more weaklings and successful versus Daniel, who starts out, and you kind of think he's this kind of weak 
cop that it has no backbone. I mean, and then all of a sudden this guy comes stumbling out of the woods and suddenly he's propelled and he has to step up to the plate. Does he? Yeah, he does. Uh, after time, he does. It, it takes a while, though, to, to step up to the plate. And that goes back to the control thing I was talking about. In order for him to actually fully, you know, assume that heroic role, he has to occupy the person being in command. And that does not happen until they go down into the basement. And it takes a while to get there. And you know what? I can't. I kind of dig that because, you know, it makes me think of like the movie Feast where the guy barges in. He says, I am the hero. And one second later, he gets eaten and he's not the hero, you know, kind of plays on that. Or even the character Kim, who's the nurse in training, who's not, she doesn't want to be there. And, you know, you got to perform a C-section on that pregnant woman. I don't know how to do this. That's like asking someone who, you know, codes in Python to say, go to this old COBOL computer and do something. I don't know how to do it. So what does she do? She hides. Um, and But you know what? I can relate to that because cowardice is like a legitimate thing. You know, not all of us are heroes. Not all of us are the number one. Um, and, you know, in this so it takes a while for us to get to that number one. And and even then, I think Carter, towards the end, well, he does he does sacrifice himself. I think that's the ultimate thing if to to claim the title of the number one hero if you're willing to sacrifice yourself. And do you think before he killed his wife with an axe, <laughs> would Carter have been able to sacrifice himself? Probably not. I think I think he would have if if his wife was still like not in the whole tentacle state. Mhm. Uh, that her body was in, I think that I, I think he still had a lot of love for her, and I think he would have like tried to still be with her. But the fact that I think the doctor alludes to, I can bring her back. Um, you know, she can be whole again, and that type of stuff. Um, but he doesn't take her up. He doesn't take him up on that, which is no. I think he, yeah, maybe the 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 greater thing is the fact that you know he felt that the doctor was full of crap. Well, I mean, there's that juncture in the film, because we've seen other films where a character comes across an infected character or, or a compromised character, and that character's got two choices. Either, you know, kill your loved one and go on, or I can't, I can't do it, I can't do it, and either someone else steps in to do it, or you get killed by that person. We see it in zombie films all the time, and shockingly, um, you know, Daniel Polly had the choice of, you know, when the visions are occurring and he sees his wife normal style, not covered in tentacles and weird, goopy stuff. He probably could have said, okay, I'm, I'm going to chill here. Door closed, end of his character. Now you go back to Simon and Vince as they actually take care of the rest. That very well could have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't. And and Carter, you know, I'm, just, I'm sorry, sweetie, if you were turned into an alien and I had to kill you, I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> I love you too much. <laughs> well, I have a couple of other things when I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I, 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 I have, uh, I, have I, I don't think I could top that. No, probably not. So mine are just minor. Um, but one of the things visually cued in for me that I thought was terrifying. And that was the, the cult members. Using the white robes and the hoods, obviously, you know, nodding to the Ku Klux Klan, uh, the black pyramid in the center of the hood, um, with no idea who they who they are, 
was just terrifying. Um, I think it also, um, there's a scene where the cult members are standing in the parking lot. And then uh, there's a musical cue. And all of a sudden, in unison, they all brandish their daggers. I just thought that was like one of the most chilling scenes in the film. And I think it actually gave me shivers just because how frightening that that looked. The visual of that particular moment was just incredible. And when you're trapped in the hospital and those are the folks outside, how do you even escape from that? No, because you have no yeah. idea. There's the 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 hoods. I mean, and I I think part of the reason why they're white is because they can be so stark against mm -hmm. the background and with the black diamond. Um, but what if they had been like a black hooded with just the white? I mean, either way, it could have worked really well. Um, yeah, you have no idea of what their motivation are. There's, it's... None of them speak. None of them speak. And you don't know what's going to set them off. Like when, um, Daniel goes out to his car the first time he's trying to call it in. And he sees one cultist out there. And he's like, well, that's pretty weird. And then he faces off to him. And what happens? The guy just, the, the... The cultist charges and stabs him up in the shoulder area. So you don't know what's even setting the... What's the motivation of all these characters? And, you know, that's really... To me, that's very scary when, when it's so unknown. Mm -hmm. And you have no way of kind of grounding any sort of behavior, what it is. I mean, um, we, we get glimpses at the end mm -hmm. when we know that the doctor's in charge of them and they do sex orgies in the farmhouse. But again, that's a glimpse. Mm -hmm. We don't know how big this is. I mean, the doctor has this line. I think it's actually kind of profound, but that's just me, where he says, you'll be surprised at the things you find when you go looking. Mm -hmm. That means he set out to find this knowledge. That means this knowledge is elsewhere. That means, guess what? What's going on at this hospital is probably going on in other, you know, in a very Lovecraftian Cthulhu cult fashion mm -hmm. in the secret corners of the world. This stuff is also in those going libraries. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I also wanted to make um, mention of the acting um, because we we haven't really got we haven't spent much time on the particular acting, but um, I'm a fan of Aaron Poole's. Um, I actually saw him in a Netflix uh, streamed Canadian series called Strange Empire, but he's also been in a number of films, um, but I actually haven't seen them. Um, but this, this show was a Western. He plays John Slaughter. He's a despicable and violent uh, mine owner. And I thought that it was really neat to, to see him in a, in a protagonist um, and play a different character that has a bit of range, just like I felt like in Strange Empire. He goes from, interestingly, a man in a lot of control to a man who has no control. And it's over, believe it or not, uh, his wife <laughs> or his madam, whatever, uh, losing their baby. So it's interesting that there's kind of that little tie in there. But I think that um, he was a very good... Um, casting choice for the role of Daniel and, and I'm I'm a fan. I hope he'll do more and that we'll see him more in other things. He's got Tim Roth vibes to him. He does. Mm -hmm. And I dig that. The doctor has like Malcolm McDowell vibes to him. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the characters all have these nice vibes that you could think of them um, uh, from other actors that are 
you know, let's just, you know, uh, couldn't afford to get <laughs> this to be honest. But they're, they're awesome, though. I This is one of the, I, on the acted front, this is a film where most of the characters are, they're not very likable. You know, Kim's a coward. Uh, the main guy's not as getting in control. His wife is kind of going to do her own thing. Um, none of them want to be there. But the thing is, I sympathize with every single one of them. Mm -hmm. And all the people playing them pull it off very well. This isn't like... That one movie, uh, oh, I hate this movie. I bring it up all the time. Now I can't remember what it's called. Changing Lanes with Ben Affleck and uh, Samuel Jackson where they just are two despicable characters that just poop on each other in the entire film. You just hate everyone and it's scrungy. This is not like that film. These characters, they're pretty real. And mm -hmm. the actors and actresses do a great job. Yeah, I thought um, all of them did actually. I mean, I'm... I'm... I singled out Aaron Poole because, you know, he is the main character and I and I was familiar with his work. Um, but yeah, all the other actors I feel deliver very well and particularly in, in a tense film there's a bit of chemistry between all of them and I think I think they made good choices with the with the cast. Um, you mentioned Kim, who is played by Ellen Wong and she's been in Scott Pilgrim versus the world and a number of other things. So she's actually gone on, um, and has a, a pretty prolific, um, filmography as well. So I think those were my points, uh, that we hadn't covered that I, that I did want to make a mention of. I think overall it's a great film, great Lovecraftian film. I think, you know, comparing it to the other Lovecraftian film we watched earlier this year, um, Underwater, which was overt Lovecraft. You know, you actually had a Cthulhu in front of you. This movie goes a different route. You know, there is no, there's no Lovecraftian proper nouns. There isn't a mention of an Azathoth or a Cthulhu or anything like that. It, it's its own thing. It's still cosmic horror. It's Lovecraftian, but it's not in the Lovecraft mythos. It does its own thing. I think and, it does a lot of nods to yeah. Lovecraft. So if you're familiar with the mythology, yeah. you're definitely going to pick up on those. But if you're not, then you know, you're know you not missing out. Yeah, there's you no just have some cameos. added flavor if yeah. you do. So highly recommended as as far as a as a, a great Lovecraftian film. This is one of those films that I think should start playing at the yearly HP Lovecraft Film Festival. And I hope like underwater it gets it gets a better rediscovery. Um right now it's kind of in that cult film status. The filmmakers just made a new film called Psycho Goreman, which I think is just a flat out gore comedy with like an alien come to Earth and wants to take it over. We're gonna have to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of films out there. Well, on that note, let's take a quick musical intermission, and then we'll come back. We'll wrap up the episode with our thank yous and upcoming events. Welcome back. We would like to thank Rahel Sexta Schmitz for this month's bumper. This past summer, she debuted The Supernatural Media Virus, Virus Anxiety in Gothic Fiction since 1990. She's also a member of the German Lovecraft Society. We wish her continued success in all of her upcoming projects. 
Now, we here at HP Lovecast Podcast are cognizant that the holidays are a busy time. So we're running a modified schedule for our December programming. Let's run through it by date. So first, on our primary program, HP Lovecast, we're going to continue off our 80s theme by picking a couple stories from Attack from the 80s, the newly released collection edited by Eugene Johnson and published by Raw Dog Screaming Press. That episode will stream Sunday, December 19th. And then we'll finish up our exploration of the 80s by interviewing a couple of authors from Attack from the 80s. This will be for our HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, and that will stream Friday, December 31st. And for a teaser in January, um, our programming will be devoted to PS Publishing's New Maps of Dream. We'll have more details in December on that. And then for Scholars from the Edge of Time, on Thursday, December 23rd, we'll be discussing Luke Besson's 2017 film, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com. And of course, you can email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we have either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. Or if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we also have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening.